Dr. Block, Dr. Walter Block, has been a senior research fellow at the Fraser Institute in Vancouver, British Columbia, and director of its Center for the Study of Economics and Religion. This week, he moved to Massachusetts, where he will assume the position of professor of economics at Holy Cross College. Dr. Block is a prolific author of scholarly articles on economics. He is a regular contributor to the Financial Post and writes a syndicated column on, for Sherman newspapers. Dr. Block is also an economic commentator on national television and radio. He also lectures widely on public policy issues. When we found out he published a book called Economics in the Environment, a reconciliation, we decided he would be the perfect choice for sharing with us his perspective of how environmental problems may be addressed through the free market. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Thanks for the kind introduction. We face great environmental dangers. These dangers fit easily in amongst the top problems facing us. War, disease, starvation, pestilence, drugs. It might even be contended that the environmental problems are as dangerous as all of them, perhaps even as all of them put together. At risk are air, ozone, greenhouse effect, deserts, water, species extinction, oil spills, hazardous waste, the list goes on and on. I'd like to share with you, uh, on a personal note, several perspectives that got me interested in the problem originally, or that indicate the perspective from which I approach it. One of them was, uh, I don't mean an insult to the great city of Los Angeles, but I was there several years ago, and tears started coming out of my eyes. And I wasn't particularly unhappy or anything, it's just that the air hurt. You know, when the air hurts, there's something weird going on. And there are places in, in Southeast Asia where people wear gas masks just to go out and walk the dog or something. And there was another one when Lake Erie caught fire. Now, I don't know where you come from, but where I come from, lakes aren't supposed to catch fire. I mean, we don't know it. And it was already water there. I mean, this is a magical potion. Associated with the free enterprise point of view. 
And with more options, there's a better chance of success. I'm here today to present a free enterprise perspective on environmental problems. My claim is that environmental problems are created by socialism, by government interventionism, and that the cure for environmental problems is free enterprise and capitalism. But before I go into this analysis, I want to uh, consider who the other ball players are, because sometimes you can't tell who's who without a scorecard. And I've divided the, uh, the group into four uh, aspects. First of all, the innocents. Uh, I guess I include my own children who are now age 13 and 11, and they come home from school, and you know, Daddy, this is not environmentally sound. Cut this out. Your car smokes too much from the exhaust. They get stuck in school, and pretty much uh, it's indicative of what's going on on TV or in newspapers or uh, John Denver's view or Barry Cummings' view, namely that greed or the marketplace is responsible for the environmental problems. But these are innocent people, and I think the average person in the street is pretty much innocent of uh, anything on this, but concern and reasonably so. Then there are two groups that I call the green socialists. The first one are the, um, the Marxists. These are viable Marxists who've seen their ideal, their, their life's dream, their life's ambition come a cropper on the other side of the, what used to be the Iron Curtain. But they're true believers. They want socialism. They don't trust individual initiative or anything like that or individual responsibility. They want the state to control our lives. They see that great socialism is no good, so they become green socialists. These are the people I call the watermelons. They're green on the outside, but they're still red on the inside. <laughs> The second group of green socialists are the, uh, the radical tree lovers, the eco-terrorists, the maniacs, uh, the human haters. You know, these are the people that say trees have rights, trees have as many rights as people. What do you mean cutting down a tree? How do you like to be cut down? These are the people that throw blood at women who wear fur coats. These are the people that advocate bombing um, uh, bands and other such like uh, activities. Uh, you know, I'm not really a big fan of the red socialists. They killed millions of people, but at least they were sort of pro-human. The reason that they did this was because, in a very error-laden way, they wanted to promote the human condition. They thought socialism was the best way to do it. But these green socialists, they're something else. I mean, they see human beings as burning. There are some real wild quotes from this group to the effect that the, the humans are uh, like a virus. and they should be wiped out. Millions of people should be wiped out. The fourth group, I think, are uh, people like myself, and I hope people uh, like in the audience here, who don't blame the market for environmental problems, but rather see in the market at least a potential solution. Let me read uh, two very brief quotes from the uh, Green Socialists. One is, uh, who was talking about the contamination of New York City beaches. I think the motivation is greed. You know, non-caring about the planet, non-caring about the ocean, and not caring about the people who live on the planet and want to use the ocean, greed. Another quote. They would want to rape the environment and make a lot of money for themselves and not rape the environment, clean up and later on stay competitive. The bills are here to make a lot of profit and they're making a lot of profit at the cost of our environment. I think these folks uh, are indicative of the thinking of these people. Fortunately, however, there are already strong signs that the market philosophy is being incorporated into environmental thinking to some small degree. I would mention this regard groups like the Nation Conservancy, Docs Unlimited, Audubon Society, and Sierra Club. 
they don't get uh, A plus marks, but at least it's not an F either. <laughs> they realize that you can't buy a politician. You can only rent one. <laughs> now, this year, you give them a payoff or a payoff, and uh, they're, oh yes, they're bringing them through. Next year, something else is more sexy or more involved, but not the hell of the environment. So they realize that if they want to protect and preserve the environment, they've got to do it themselves. They can't rely on the political sphere. So instead of asking the government to buy woodlands, wetlands, etc., etc., they buy it themselves with money voluntarily raised from the public, which is in the old capitalist voluntary tradition. There was an amazing story on the Audubon Society with the Rainy National Forest Reserve right here in Louisiana. Guess what was discovered on the Rainy uh, Forest Reserve? Natural gas alone. And you think that the ordinary environmentalists say oil, gas, yuck, you know, that's the disgusting stuff, we're against it. But because they owned it, their incentives were very different. <laughs> <laughs> they realized that if they developed it in a way that would not harm their holdings, they would then be able to go out and buy billions of more acres of holdings. And that's exactly what they did. Whereas had that been in a public reserve, you can bet your boots that you'd be down in Washington testify, oh no, no, let's never develop any oil and gas or anything. That was civilization, in effect, because that's what oil and gas means. Well, my orientation is to try to reconcile economics and the environment. That's the title of our book, Economics and the Environment and Reconciliation. We have those green colors, which should be a taste of what it's about. Um, what I want to do is to use economic means to achieve environmental ends. And the best way to introduce the economic means by becoming a crisis and it's by use of street signs. Street signs are very important. We take them for granted all too often. And yet our lives would be unmanageable without them. I mean, imagine coming into a certain city and trying to make your way around. It would be all but impossible. There are stories in medieval times when a, uh, a town was surrounded by an invading army. What they do is take out the street signs on the ground that the local folk knew how to get around, whereas the invading army would be rendered helpless, not by bows and arrows, but by taking away street signs, which are the directing guideposts of the geography. Well, the reason I'm going on and on about street signs is because there's an analogy between street signs, geography, and prices to the... What are you doing to me? <laughs> There's an analogy between street signs and geography, or the urban geography, well, the geography in general, and prices to the uh, economy. But just as we have to have accurate prices, uh, not any old street signs will do. If some genie snuck in in the middle of the night and changed old street signs in arbitrary ways, they would be no better than no street signs at all. Similarly, if some genie snuck in in the night and changed old prices around, we would be helpless economically speaking. Let me give you an example of the Soviet Union and Bulgaria, where I happen to have some data on with regard to prices to show what kind of lousy street signs they've got there for their economy. Dinner for five people at an eight course dinner would want $14. A month's rent, $3. Bread, three cents a loaf. A car, $100,000. I don't have a good car. I mean, a lot of it. A TV, $10,000. A pair of jeans, $1,000. That's why the Soviet athletes come home. They buy 
person in that position, and we're going to ask what motivations uh, attach to that person. And right now, there's only one motivation. Feeling for our fellow human creatures, love for the planet, something like that. In other words, if you're a nice guy, you'll take the paper. And if you're allowed to run the sample, like you guys are, you'll take the plastic. But we know what Addison said about benevolence. He said benevolence is not the benevolence that the butcher and the baker and the candlestick maker because their product is derived from the guy's self interest. Now, I'm not putting benevolence against self-interest. I'm saying, if this is a serious problem, and it is, then it behooves us to look for any human motivation. But I'm not knocking benevolence. I think benevolence moves the world. I mean, our churches, our society, and this organization is based on benevolence. This is a, a voluntary organization. So that's all in well and good, and I'm in favor of benevolence. I don't want you spreading rumors out anti-benevolence. However, I think it would be nice if we also had selfishness at our back and call. But we don't. Why not? Well, let's go to the economics of it. The economics of it are, as I uh, make clear in my chapter to this book, that it costs, say, just for uh, uh, illustration purposes, it costs a penny to produce a paper bag and it costs a penny to produce a plastic bag. And you go scratching your head, well, it's a penny versus a penny, so you have no economic incentive whatsoever. Why is this? Why is the price system, remember that? Why is the price system so lousy? Why is it such a, a, a lousy, no good uh, guidepost? Here's a crucial problem. The price system says it's throwing up its hands and it's saying, we can't help you. I mean, an ideal price system should be that it would cost uh, 20 bucks for the plastic bag, right? And a penny for the paper bag, and then everyone would be led as if by an invisible hand to choose the paper bag. That plus benevolence would solve the problem, but it's not working. Why isn't it working? Maybe one guess. The answer is socialism. Socialism in a quasi-unrelated area, namely garbage disposal. Right now we have socialized garbage disposal. The government says in effect to us, okay, well, how much is it going to cost for us to um, cart away all the garbage? How will it cost, say, a thousand bucks? Okay, well, we'll tax you guys a thousand bucks. Forget about uh, the fact that we have a budget deficit. We'll tax the whole thing, and then we'll give you these services for free. You pay for it. It's all like the freeways, only they should be called taxways. They're not freeways, they're taxways. Right? Well, garbage is not a freeway, it's a taxway. They collect money from you, and then they use it for free. So you have an only down Then the, the real true cost of putting one plastic bag in your earth 
will be five bucks. Well, that's what the price of disposing of a plastic bag will end up being. You can't get more than that because of competition. If the true costs only five bucks and you charge six bucks, someone else will under bid you and, you know, go down to five, ninety-five, eighty, go down to five bucks. You won't charge less than five bucks because the true costs to you are five bucks. So when the uh, carter, that is the, the trucker who goes from home curbside to the garbage dump, comes to you, he says, sure, I'll take all the bucks that you want and a charge of five bucks each plastic bag. He goes to the homeowner and says, homeowner, sure, I'll take all that plastic, any plastic you want. Makes no difference to me. Five bucks a shot. And now let's get back to our original mental experiment. We're back in the supermarket shipping ass counter. Only now we have a very, very, very different economic analysis. Remember before it was a penny versus a penny. Well, it's still a third penny versus penny to buy the bloody thing. But now the paper is a penny to buy, a penny to dispose of a grand total of two cents. Where the plastic is a penny to buy and five bucks to dispose of it for a grand total of five or one. Now, is there anyone here who doubts that the whole problem would go away if that was the choice we were faced with at the end of the supermarket shopping Of course the whole problem would go away. I'm not saying that no one ever would use plastic bags. I was in the hospital last month, knee surgery, nothing serious. And um, they had a plastic bag uh, dripping stuff into my elbow. Well, those kind of plastic bags would still be used because their value presumably is more than five But right now we use plastic promiscuously. We use it if it's worth more to us than a penny. It's worth more to us than a penny, but not than five bucks. Okay, that is the, uh, the area of the illustration that I want to go into in some depth. I'm almost out of time. So I want to make just a few concluding remarks. First of all, I've been assuming that plastic is, is the scourge of the earth. This is not necessarily true. I only assume it for illustration purposes. There is this uh, garbologist. A garbologist is to garbage as an archaeologist is to ancient monuments. So he, you know, most of us see a man of garbage, we go, yeah, let me get away. He sees a, a man of garbage, he goes, yeah, and starts drooling, and you know, ready to get in there, and do the breaststroke into it, and, and well, there's this guy, William Rafferty, who's analyzed, I mean, you know, it's I say, my son is a biologist, my son is a doctor, but it doesn't work. But anyway, he's analyzed mountains of garbage from 50, 60, 70 years ago, and he says plastic is inert. It doesn't really, it's not toxic. But I'm just a dummy economist, so what do I know about these finer points of chemistry? All I know is the price system. You know, the, the Paris is polyvalent cracker, I say price system, price system, capitalism, freedom. Let me very, very briefly, in conclusion, go over three other areas. Air and water pollution, uh, running out of resources and overpopulation. And I'll conclude them all the questions in the session. First, on the air and water question, it's the same problem as plastic. People dump it into the water, people dispose of their waste into the air, they don't pay a price. The price is zero, so of course they'll do it. Look, if you were a business person, and you were uh, filled with green, and so we call it, to your very core, you would still have to realize that if you dispose of your waste in a very uh, uh, expensive way and your competitors just bump it into the air and water, you go broke. So that's no recipe for a solution. The recipe for a solution is to get a price for bumping into the air and water. And the technicalities are, are present, and that would take a long time to go into, but the principle is clear. Running out of resources or extinction of animals. 
entices us to utilize them, and it gives signals to those those street signs. It gives signals to the producers to stop producing more of it. So everything is fine. But we don't have prices for some resources and for some animals. Elephants, rhinoceros, alligators, crocodiles, things like that. If we did, as the danger of them became more severe, going extinct, the price of them would rise. This would entice people and induce people. That people would be led by Adam's invisible hand to save them all the more. We don't have that. We don't have a crisis. We need Paris traffic here. Third, overpopulation. As far as I'm concerned, I'm a big lover of humanity. I'm a humanist. In the sense of sexist or racist, I'm a human being. And I think the humans are against other species. I'm sorry, I don't apologize for it. Some of my best friends are human beings. I, I like human beings. As far as I can see, the earth is empty. Anyone who's ever been up in an airplane and looked down can verify. I used to live in Canada and fly across there. Now there's an empty country. There's no one there. 25 million people. It's like the third biggest country in the world. Calculations have shown that if every, every member of the human race, all six billion of us, were organized into four person family units and given 8,200 square feet to live on, that's the average front yard, backyard, and middle class house, everybody, all six billion of us, could fit into Texas.
environmental community is behind it. I, representing the status perspective, the only one saying no, this is a lot of idea. Because you're going to find it not dumb, and you're going to find people not putting their trash out, putting the trash in that lot. So sometimes political considerations and human actions go beyond the strict economics of, okay, we're going to charge a dollar to do that in the curve. Yes, I think that's a very good question and a very uh, insightful. Uh, I have um, several responses. First of all, on the recycling, they may bring their own bag, whether paper or plastic, if they keep reusing or recycling. Well, the price system is the street song for that, too. I mean, the, the price system is pervasive. It's not just limited to the question of plastic or paper. It's, it's also covering the question of how much garbage and how much wrapping. See, what the wrappings that are now given to us in foods and milk and whatever are based on a zero price of disposal. It's perfectly rational for manufacturers to wrap goods as they do now, given the price prices that they're facing. But these prices are as reasonable as a thousand dollars for ten jeans. See, if we had a price system that indicated what the true cost of disposing of the wrappings were, wrappings or the paper plastic or whatever, then we would be led as if by invisible hands to recycle optimally. Whereas right now, you know, uh, it's sort of like a chicken with its head cut off running around squawking, if you can follow that one. Uh, we're sort of uh, in the dark. We don't know how much to recycle. And you can't say recycling is the answer because it has to be optimal recycling. You know, should we recycle tissue paper? I mean, uh, should we recycle? Yes, we should recycle uh, the 40-year-old uh, Rolls Royces. And the market tells us, you know, recycle it, but not recycle uh, 40-year-old uh, whatever, you know, uh, Volkswagen or something. Now, with regard to the, uh, I'll, I'll call on you next. With regard to the uh, midnight dumping and stuff, and, and the, the Rhode Island thing of charging five dollars, I heard Gorbachev say, "We're going to have the free market, and the price of bread is going to be raised." Now, does anyone see a contradiction here? I mean, if we have a free market, Gorbachev has nothing to do with the price of uh, uh, bread. We have a free market in frisbees and in rubber bands and paper clips, and Bush doesn't uh, get involved in the pricing of those things. Well, Rhode Island should have nothing to say about what the price of, of uh, plastics are. I mean, that's not the free enterprise system where Rhode Island uh, Senator House or something that says what the price should be. How many places do they know what the price should be? That's price fixing. That's government intervention. What I'm saying is privatize the solid waste management industry and let the price be generated the way the price of science is generated. Now, if you were to look around at what the problems are, there are no problems with bubble gum, paper clips, rubber bands, because there's no government involvement there. Wherever there's a problem, there's government involvement. So I see less of it, not more Now, with regard to midnight government, I we see, no matter what, we're, we're human beings, and some of us are going to be bloody minded. We rape, we murder, we steal. Okay? We have jails for such. Activity. And hopefully, if the police were not so busy doing all sorts of other things that they shouldn't be doing, they could concentrate on victim crimes, not victimless crimes. And we would stop people like this. But I think that most people would not burn plastics or bump, trespass plastics on, onto other people's property if we had penalties.
spent the really soccer to I mean, you know, if you went to jail for 20 years and doing this, uh, people would think twice. If the true price of a plastic bag is $5, and I'm no central planning, I'm, I'm not saying it should be. I'm just using that for illustration purposes. But if the real price was, was $5, it's not that they buy lots of plastic and then worry about disposing it. They wouldn't buy it in the first place. Except for that 1% that murders and rapes and steals. And with them, I, you know, we really have no answer. The lady in the next slide is correct. I'd like to say something about our Confederation. We sell bags, and we don't use plastic or paper. We recycle our bags. This is a natural thing that we, uh, we all have. Our Sarah stayed on it. Uh, our girls have gone out. We have the right to know the laws that passed. And we brought a chemical companies where everything is much, much more allowed to go in. It's the right to know. Allow us in the pool to check their. Uh,
to me at Holy Cross Economics Department, what's the mass, zip code 01610. I'll uh, dig up the citation. I mean, I didn't do that myself. There was some weirdo that made that calculation. I think so. Let me repeat that. Uh, economics Department, Holy Cross College, Lucifer Mass, so W-O-R-C-E-S-T-E-R, and the zip code is 01610. I mean, it's sort of rough, and when I give a 20 minute speech, I can't give you all the footnotes, you can appreciate it. Uh, a lot of this you have to take on trust or buy the book and see the footnotes there. I just went through the arithmetic, it does work. It does, well, there we go. We have a math decision. We're assuming, I think, uh, Something like five foot eight tall, uh, you know, a foot and a half wide and maybe six inches deep or something like that. Cubic so, foot. Yeah, we're, we're assuming everyone stands like this. So, like, he's worse than slave quarters. You know, think of sardines. Uh, or people sucking themselves into a telephone booth. And I think the math is correct, but, um, you know, we'll have to uh, we'll do this together. Yes. I'm sorry, I can't hear you. How would you catch these people? And you think that the police are out there doing something that they shouldn't be doing when they're maybe saving somebody from being raped or catching a, a murder, and they should be out on the road where we always see the dumping? No, 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 I think I've been misinterpreted here. I am certainly in favor of the police stopping murders and rapists and thieves. Oh, uh, believe me, I'm very much in favor of that. Those are the bad guys, and the police are the only ones that I think can do it. But there are many other crimes that I don't really think are crimes, uh, like um, violating rent control regulations or so-called economic crimes, and I think if we got them off the books, uh, we have more police power. Even if we didn't get them off the books, I think that we should use more money for police because we, in general, live in a society that's not as safe as it should be. But I think that one additional thing that the police could do would be to stop um, uh, people who use abuse plastic by burning it into the air or dumping it onto other people. But as I made the point with the other woman that was back there, right now we envision, you know, everyone dumping plastic. But I don't think it would be that way. I think it would be the usual criminal element of one or two percent. If we had a crisis, I insist that if the price of plastic, the full cost, not just buying it but disposing of it, was five dollars, it's not that people would be up to their armpits in plastic wondering how they can get rid of it. They wouldn't buy it in the first place. We have a very small problem. I'm sorry? The, the dumping of garbage. In the remote places, yeah. we actually had a policeman in an airplane spotting the dumpers, and they still dumped. And that's what I'm saying. Well, even though I've seen the case, all we have to do is, is double the penalty and double it again. And what's that? Yes. How far are we from the Obama? Fines and incentives, extra motivation. And we said in the election, we know that we want to add taxes locally or nationally for incentives toward correcting our problem and polluting the environment. I'm really sorry. If I'm going to do justice to the question, I have to understand it better. 
Did you in your chapter list or maybe throughout the book list specifics for taxation towards direct environmental treatment? No, uh, we're, we're trying to get away from taxation. I only mention this in response to the Midnight Dumping question. I think the Midnight Dumping question is a really not important issue. Okay. Because I think. Let me rephrase it. I think that in a free enterprise system, which we now do not have, the Midnight Dumping question would be a very unserious question. I think that right now, under environmental socialism, it's a crucial question. But I think that the answer for it is not mainly the police and raising taxes for more police. I think that is a very unsophisticated solution. The elegant solution is a high system, a series of environmental street signs, which will lead people in their own selfish interest not to act in such an inefficient manner in the first place. You know there's that expression, don't fight the alligators, drain the swamp. Well, what I'm advocating here is not that we fight midnight numbers one by one and, you know, you, we're going to grab you and throw you in jail. You, we're going to get you. That's fighting alligators. The way to get them is to drain us off. If I can use this non-environmental analogy. And the way to drain the swamp here is by having a price system which leads most people to act in a way that is cooperative one way or another. Yes? I'm not a big fan of tax incentives or taxes. I think that that is a government um, solution, and I think that government is uh, all I say to works, and the government is the, the, it's the source of the problem. It's not the cure. Now, have I gone into the air pollution situation? Uh, in greater depth, in the depth that I had in the plastic versus paper, I would have made the following remarks. Let me just make some of them because it's pertinent to your question. In the 1830s, when there was what we would now call environmental cases, in those days they were called nuisance cases, what would happen was some woman would hang out her washing on the back line and a uh, factory would belch forth smoke and get her one tree wet, and she had a dirty mother. And she'd go to court asking for an injunction, not just for any old thing. You know, she asked for a court order to get that factory to stop it. And she'd get it. She'd get it. And this meant that factory owners had an incentive to develop smoke prevention devices, to use research and development to solve this problem to use high-grade anthracite coal instead of low-grade sulfur coal, to act responsibly because the courts in the 1830s were upholding property rights, when we talk about property rights. Or a farmer would go to court and say, this big, bad railroad got sparks on my haystacks. And the same thing. The courts would grant each other relief. And the economy was moving toward a rational response to the environmental problem. However, in the 1840s and the 1850s, and please don't ask me for all the citations, they're in the footnotes. Take my word just for a moment. In the 1850s, a new legal philosophy started to pervade the society. No longer were private property rights important. The next time the little old lady or the, the farmer came in, the court would sneer and say, How are you saving property rights? You're allowing these selfish, individualistic property rights. There's something more important than your miserable property rights. What's that? That's the public interest. You know, drum rolls, ah, uh, public interest. And what does the public interest consist of? 
other interests consist of economic growth. And how are we going to get economic growth? By having manufacture. So the hell is your property rights? We're going to let these guys run the rough shot over you. We're going to let them use the air and the water and your property as free disposal sinks. Well, how long did they have any incentive to use anthracite coal instead of sulfur? How long did they have any incentive to engage in uh, smoke prevention devices? Uh, no longer do they have any incentive to uh, consider the property rights of other people. Why should they? If they did, they'd go broke. Because other people would. One uh, thing that emanated from this uh, career was that they didn't build higher smoke stacks. Now, the old smoke stacks used to be 10 feet high. Now they're 300 feet high. You know why? We're sweeping the problem under the rock into the clouds. So, of course, this particular factory is following this woman. This factory is following that woman, and that factory is following this woman, and this is no solution. This is the government's solution. What I say is we've got to turn back the clock. I hate to use that expression, but I can't think of a better one. Get back to the 1830s. You see, what we're doing is we're missing 160 years of research and development that the capitalist system would have been working on to solve the problem. That's why the problem is so hard. Do you know that stuff in uh, forensic medicine? You know, A stabs B, and he gets the teeniest speck of blood, and, and he washes his clothes. They can still, months later, uh, with forensic uh, uh, technology, find out who the blood was from and get the murder. At least they can do it in the detective stories, and I'm thinking they already took But here's forensic environmentalism. It's nowhere. If I get a speck of dust on me, nobody knows what factory it came from. And yet, if we had been working 150 years on this, instead of trying to get someone to the moon to talk about a waste of expense, in my view at least, if we had 160 years of research and development in this whole particle forensics, there'd be nobody free to uh, environmentally dump. I mean, this is serious plastic dumping. This isn't, you know, some uh, guy with two bags full of plastic. This is companies. Uh, the reason we have the problems we have is because we took a wrong turn in the 1830s. And the solution to that is, I think, property rights and free processes that emanate only from property rights and not from government tax solutions and not from government solutions. Government has a role to play. In my view, the government's like a fire. If it stays in the fireplace, that's great. If the fire gets added to the living room, you have problems. Well, what the government has to do is to protect property rights, protect persons, have a judiciary, courts, all these police, and that's about it. Not much more than that. Maybe some slight social welfare program or something. But as far as the economy, very little else. Instead, the government has been doing all sorts of things, you know, screwing up farm prices, messing up uh, residential housing prices, interfering here, and having vast bureaus in Washington. And they have not been doing the one thing that the economy needs them to do, and that is to define property rights in a reasonable way. No, in the 1840s, and up until about 15 years ago, entrepreneurs were given carte blanche to the air and the water in each other's lungs. And all of a sudden, we wake up 150 years ago and we say, holy cow, you, you need a gas mask to walk outside, your suit is getting dirty. It must be a fault of greed and capitalism. Right? Yes, we need more government intervention. 